0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: John is serving outside, not just outside the temple, not just outside the temple courts, outside the city, out in the wilderness. And it's a picture for us because here's what God was doing. He was drawing his people out of the ceremonies, out of the the festivals, out of the feast, out of the sacrifices, out into the wilderness, and he was doing it with a word, and that word was repent.
0: As we move into chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. We will consider what Luke has to say about the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. We begin a two-part message that Pastor Sam has entitled, The Baptism of Repentance. Let's listen in as we begin part 1.
1: Turning our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're looking at the first 14 verses. Title of our study this morning, The Baptism of... Repentance. We saw in our introductory studies that Luke painstakingly researched the events and the people and the time frame and all those things associated with the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So he writes what he calls a very orderly, uh, you know, record of those particular events. And we read here, and this will make sense to you. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now what he's doing is he's giving us eight different people that were all involved in some major way with well, the events surrounding the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He wants us to know this as a historical document. This isn't the mythology of the Messiah. This isn't some story that was made up by men to try to control other men. And you hear a lot of nonsense from a lot of people as far as, well, what is the Bible? Actually, it is God's record of how he created us and how we got in the mess we're in and what he's done to fix that mess. Well, Again, he starts with Tiberius Caesar. This, by the way, Caesar is a title used by the Roman emperors. It began with a guy named Julius, but there's Augustus Caesar and Tiberius Caesar and Claudius Caesar and Caesar Nero. So Caesar is like, well, that's the the, the name that each emperor will take and then they'll have their own name associated with it. It's during the years we read then of this particular Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the Roman governor. Many of you knowing the story already realize he's the one who will ultimately declare Jesus to be innocent of all charges against him and then send the innocent man to. To be crucified. Herod, Antipas, and Philip, these two are half-brothers. And uh, Herod is, well, they're both a part of the Herodian dynasty. They are descendants of the Edomites, descendants of Esau. If you go back to uh, the early portion of the book of Genesis, uh, this is the Herod that will be rebuked by John. He's not the same Herod that destroyed all the children at the birth of Jesus. We're further down the line, but uh, John is going to get in his face. Why? He takes his brother Philip's wife. Her name's Herodias. And, and uh, they just start shacking up. And and John is someone who has access to Herod. And Herod actually likes listening to John until John gets in his face and says, repent. What you're doing is wrong. You, you have no business taking your brother's wife. Well, ultimately, he will have him arrested and then will have him beheaded. Philip, he's the tragic half-brother whose wife leaves him for his uh, his brother Herod, uh, Antipas. Uh, Licinius, he rules in the area north of Mount Hermon, about 18 miles northwest of Damascus. The next two, Annas and Caiaphas, are both called Israel's high priest. Now ordinarily if things would have been what God intended you would only have one high priest at any given time because the only time you had a new high priest is when the former high priest died. But what happened is Rome was ruling and they were ruling not just over the world but over this part of the world Israel. They saw the power that Annas as a spiritual leader of Israel had and the They were threatened by that. Not that they were going to be overcome by him, but they didn't want any disruption or any problems with the the you know religious leaders so what they did is they Rome appointed his son-in-law Caiaphas and this is a pretty wise political move they figure we'll put Caiaphas in as high priest Herod the uh uh Annas isn't going to do anything to disrupt Caiaphas because he's married to well his daughter And, and and so it was pretty wise politically but it was completely unbiblical and that's why when Jesus is arrested that they first take him to Annas. This is much further into the story, of course, but just to say, all of these people are a part of the story. He's introducing us to the people that were major players in the events surrounding, uh, especially Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And so uh, Caiaphas and Annas will both be a part, both will condemn Jesus, both will work together to see that he ends up crucified. And then we come to John. John, an interesting character, born into the priesthood because, well, his dad, Zacharias, was a priest. But unlike his dad who served in the temple, John is serving outside, not just outside the temple, not just outside the temple courts, outside the city, out in the wilderness. And it's a picture for us because here's what God was doing. He was drawing his people out of the ceremonies out of the the festivals, out of the feast, out of the sacrifices, out into the wilderness. And he was doing it with a word. And that word was repent. He comes to John and we read it there in uh, verse two, the latter part, the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. Now, this is an Old Testament picture for us. This is how God dealt with the prophets of old. In fact, you might be surprised to know that John actually fits into the Old Testament prophets because the scriptures do say the law and the prophets were unto John. So, you know, Malachi closes the Old Testament. At least that's our understanding and 400 years of silence. But but when that silence is broken, it's John's dad who first gets the message, hey, you are going to have a son with your wife and he is gonna go before the face of the Lord to prepare the people of the Lord for the coming of the Lord. So the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness and John responded by preaching the word God gave him. Now that word is repent. That's why we've entitled this study the baptism of repentance. And you need to know that the emphasis here is not on the physical act of baptism, but on the repentance that was supposed to be uh, preceding that and testified to by the actual baptism. We read in verse 3 he went into the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Key word here repentance. Why? repentance is the issue baptism would be an outward evidence of an inward change in other words if there were no real repentance the baptism would be hypocrisy and if there were no real repentance the remission of sins would be an illusion. It is interesting that Dr. Luke's on to something here. He calls it the remission of sin, not the eradication of sin. What's the difference? Well, if sin were eradicated in the one who repents, there would no longer be a struggle with sin. All our struggles would be outside of us. Some people actually believe that happens. They call it glorious sanctification. Now, I do believe that there will be such an event, but it won't happen till we stand before our Lord in glory and we become like the one who made us in the first place and has redeemed us and will be with him and will be like him. But the idea is, well, once you're gloriously sanctified, you're no longer tempted, you no longer sin. In fact, years ago, James Edwin Orr, one of my teachers early on as a Christian, um he said he had been speaking in an event and, and he had shared this very concept that there's no such thing as glorious sanctification on this side of heaven. And someone came up afterwards and said, well, I just want to take issue with your statement because I was gloriously sanctified years ago and I haven't sinned since. Well, James Edwin Orr kind of looked at him and said, well, are you married? And he said, well, marriage isn't a sin, you know? And he said, well, I didn't think it was. I'm just interested. Are you married? And he said, I happen to be. And he said, well, is your wife here? And He said, yeah, why? Well, I'd love to meet her. Well, you know where this is going. He brings in this wife. James Edwin Orr says, your husband just told me something astounding. He said he was gloriously sanctified years ago and hasn't sinned since. He said he left them there arguing. And so... (laughs) It just makes the point. Listen, I wish it were true that we got saved and that we never struggled with sin. But Paul says the opposite happens. Before we were saved, we just many of us yielded to our sin. We bragged and boasted about our sin. But once we come to Christ, well, we we surrender our life sealed with the Holy Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians until the day of redemption. And a battle begins internally between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh wanting to dominate what it has always dominated, our decisions, our choices. And the spirit of God saying, no, you committed your life to Christ. You're going to listen to me. You're going to follow me. And so the scriptures say the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, each wanting to control our life. Luke says when you repent and remember, these guys are repenting and the word just means to change your mind. We'll see all the ways they had to change their mind in a moment. But to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your direction, to change your lifestyle. It, repent means to change and to change for the better. And and, and so when they repented, they were actually preparing for the coming of the Lord. When we repent, we're acknowledging the Lord has come. He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. But it's the same need. We have to stop thinking we're okay apart from Him and realize unless Jesus died for our sins, we would have been forever. lost in sin. Well, the issue then is repentance and and that's what John is calling them to do. Jesus by the way will preach the very same message after his baptism and temptation he comes out and immediately preaches repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter on the day of Pentecost will preach repentance, Paul in Acts 17, will preach repentance to the Greek philosophers in Athens. Jesus will say, repent to those churches who needed to among the seven written to in Revelation 2 and 3. And so, so John gets the message. He goes around preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Not the eradication, but, eradication, but the remission of sins of sins, sin under control, sin no longer dominating, sin no longer devastating and destroying. Romans is so clear in this area. It says that we need to reckon the old man dead. We are no longer slaves to sin because we've chosen to be servants and slaves of our Lord instead. Well, he goes back to the Old Testament because again, he's functioning like the prophets of old. He says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places may... Um, be shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. Now, John was calling God's people to repent and prepare the highway of their hearts, as it were, for the Lord's coming, and he uses. A passage out of Isaiah that talks about doing that very thing. It's really talking to people about preparing their hearts. But, but you should know in the day these words were spoken and written, when a visiting monarch or king was about to come, he would send someone before him and that one would be responsible to go and make sure the roads were prepared. Why? They didn't have a highway system like we have. And their, their roads were dirt roads and, and oftentimes on winding cliffs, if there was a Mud slide, it could wash the road out entirely there'd be no way to pass in fact today to this day the Jericho road that you know you go up from Jericho up to Jerusalem it is just a one lane road and you'll be on it going around these steep curves there's a hundred foot plus uh, you know drop off on one side, a cliff on the other, and then a bus comes the other way. And it's just amazing to see how close to the cliff they get or how close to the, you know, uh, mountain they get and how close to the cliff you get. So, so they're saying, prepare your heart in essence. And, and in that day they'd go and they'd fill in all the potholes and they'd make sure that the roads were straight and functional. And so he's applying that picture to, to the need for God's people to side with God against themselves. That's another meaning of repentance. When when God says that we're guilty sinners in the sight of a holy God and men say, well, I don't know if I'm a sinner. Well, let me assure you, you are. And, uh, and not because I know you or I've caught you or seen you. No, because God declares that you're a guilty sinner just like every other guilty sinner. And, and so he just says, Prepare. That's what he's saying and repent in order to prepare. Then in verse six, he says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This has always been in the heart and mind of God. Joshua preached it. David preached it. Solomon preached it. Hezekiah preached it what they did in their particular time of serving the Lord and representing the Lord was was done that all the world might know that there was and is a God and the God that made us and the God that loves us and a God who has a plan to redeem us. Well, John, very unusual as preachers go. And you'll see that in verse seven. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It would be like you showing up here. And the first thing I did, look at you and say, repent, sinners, you know, and and like, well, I got a friend north of town who actually does that. But but uh, the, the bottom line is John was called as a prophet. And so he's doing what the prophets did. I'm called to preach and teach and it's a different ministry. And, and I personally, you know, I, I like what God has called me to do. I'm grateful for the opportunity. But, but when they come to him, well, he starts his sermon by rebuking the crowds that had gathered to hear him. Now, today... I see a lot of people doing the exact opposite. First, they use carnal means to gather the crowds and then they corrupt the message itself in order to keep those crowds. And and I want to tell you that, that, um, you know, if God gives you a message and I pray that he does and will, you want to deliver it and you want to do it in love. I believe John's motivation was faithfulness to the Lord and love for people. He wanted to be found faithful. In fact, the thing that mattered most to him isn't how people saw him. That's clear. It's not if people liked him or if people stuck with him. He was all about, I've got a message. I'm going to deliver it. And then I'm going to stand before the Lord and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to tell you that, that our time together is never meant to be an end in of itself. It is supposed to be preparation for us to go out into the world and represent the Lord to the world that needs to know what he's telling us. And one thing he's telling us is that, well, when there's something not right And in their case, most of what they were doing was instituted by God. I mean, their temple, it was the temple God wanted to be built. Their feast, their festivals, their sacrifices, all of that ordained and given to them by God. The problem was at this point, they were doing all that, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And so John shows up and God says, I want you to go tell them to repent. And remember, he's talking not to the, the people that don't know about the Lord or are ignorant worshipers of idols. He's talking to the people of God. He's calling God's people. To repentance. So the multitude comes. By the way, this language, as harsh as it is, brood of vipers. I mean, you should be able to understand that he's saying you're offspring of snakes. It's not exactly a compliment. And when he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Matthew 3, 7 says he was actually focused at this point on the Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders who actually were at odds with one another, but were still interested in protecting their own deal. Sort of like Democrats and Republicans, though I don't want to get into a political thing, but when you get right down to it, of course, you're going to say, well, I agree more with this group or that group. But in the end, if the major desire and and emphasis is to establish and keep power, well, those people can never rightly represent anyone but themselves. And that's what had happened to the religious establishment in Jesus' day one group very conservative, the other very uh, material and uh, materialistic and such, and one very religious, the other so, not really so much so, but but here they are together because they perceive a common threat and they will join together against Jesus to make sure he's put to death because he ultimately is the, the target and the reason for that threat. Well, John then preaches that everyone needs to repent. And uh, I just pray that God would make us the kind of people that would be more interested in what God thinks about us than what people thinks about us. If he gives you a message, then I'm sure he will. It might be just this word. Then you need to preach it and you need to preach it in love. You need to speak the truth in love. Well, he goes on in verse eight to say, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, God had made a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. And so it's easy to see how they got mixed up and confused in this area. They thought, hey, God made the covenant with Abraham and his descendants forever. We are his descendants. So the covenant is made with us. Here's the problem. They thought being a mere physical descendant of Abraham should be enough when the reality was God was looking for people who would associate with Abraham spiritually. You see, he walked by faith and in obedience. That was the covenant God made with him. Hey, you continue to walk like this. I'm going to continue to bless you. Now, he made some unconditional promises, yes, but but it doesn't mean that everyone who was a physical descendant was going to be an heir to those promises. So Abe's true descendants, those who walk by faith and walk in obedience. Jesus actually fleshes this out for us, makes it very simple and very clear. And it's important if we're gonna take a message to a world that thinks they're okay when we know they're not and God says they're not, that we get this right. Listen to Jesus' words in John 1:10. It's one of the saddest, two of the saddest verses in all of scripture. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But and that's the bad news. Here's the good news. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood. Now what he does is he gives us four things that people trust in, and he says, those aren't gonna work. To be born of blood speaks of our heredity. It speaks of our, our physical family from which we've descended. And, and he's saying, it's not gonna be that. Those who he saves are not going to be those born of blood, heredity, nor the will of the flesh. That speaks to man's efforts personally. And all he's saying there is, I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. No, God had to reach down to us. And the reason he reached down to us is there is no way we could bridge the gap that was caused by our sin that separated us from God. I have a a grandson. Many of you are aware of that, no doubt, if you've been coming. He's almost two, well, about three months away, but we say almost two. And one of the cutest things I ever saw is he started jumping. And he, you know, I play a lot of basketball and we have something in common. Now, when he jumps, he gets about, oh, I don't know, one inch off the ground, but he doesn't know that. See, we're like jumping. He goes and it's like, It's like that, hardly anything happening. But man, the biggest smile on his face, he doesn't know he isn't jumping 10 feet high. And and my point in sharing that simple illustration is this, men are thinking, I can jump up to God. It'd be like jumping to the moon. It's not gonna happen. And and whatever effort we're making, it is falling so far short that at best God's saying, oh, look how cute they are. They're trying to jump up to me, you know? I better figure something out, you know? And, and, And the deal is we just cannot do it. So, so it's not of blood, not of our heredity, it's not of the will of the flesh, man's efforts personally, nor the will of man. That's just saying no parent can save their child, no preacher can save anybody. You know that this has to be a supernatural work, a spiritual work, and you know that because, well, those of you who've given your life to the Lord have experienced the new birth.
0: Hear Jesus' words in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. Now there are many cases in which the religious amongst us are in more danger of missing this truth than those who have completely rejected Jesus. At least the ones who have rejected him know where they stand, and the call for them to repent is the call to repent of their disbelief. But the religious, they think they're good to go, and that their works have somehow given them the ability to come to the Father. Well, if they have not given their lives over to Jesus Christ and been born again, they are in no better of a place than the ones who have rejected him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.